0: Our scripture reading this morning will be in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, beginning in verse 5 through 17. If you have uh, your Bible or your Bible app, I invite you to follow along. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were calmed in one body, and be thankful.
1: Uh, Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, We're going to be looking at that passage that Kim just read, Colossians 3, verses 5 through 17. Uh, I'll be reading the English Standard Version. You can read whatever version makes sense to you as we take a look at this. Uh, How can you tell if someone is a follower of Jesus or not? Uh, Just by looking at them, how can you tell if they're a follower of Jesus or not? It may seem like a simple question, uh, but for a lot of people, it is not. Uh, One study recently that I read found that 84% of young Christians, so like millennials, like my age and younger, uh, uh, who were not Christians themselves, 84% of young people knew a Christian, had a Christian friend, uh, but they said that only about 15% of those people said that their Christian friend was in any way different from all the rest of their friends. Uh, So 84% of people, young people, have a Christian friend. Only 15% of them said, yes, my friend who follows Jesus lives a different life in any kind of way at all. Uh, There's a survey done in 2023 that asked uh, religious nuns, again, not nuns like Catholic nuns, but people who don't identify as religious in any kind of way, uh, what were some of the causes of your, either your agnosticism or why don't you believe, or if you used to believe, why don't you believe? And the number one reason that was given was because of what was perceived as religious hypocrisy by followers of Jesus. In other words, they claimed to follow Jesus, and yet their lives looked nothing like the Jesus that they read in the scriptures, looked nothing like uh, a person who was transformed by this, uh, this teacher, this Messiah, Jesus. That's a big crisis. Right? When people hear that you follow Jesus, and yet for them, it doesn't mean the things of Jesus, it means hypocrite. It means not actually living a life uh, that is shaped by Jesus. The world is looking into uh, the communities of followers of Jesus and saying, so what? What is different about your life other than the fact that maybe your Sunday mornings from 10 to noon are occupied every week? What's actually different about your life? You see, when Jesus calls us to discipleship, to follow him, it means to imitate him, to be a student of his life, to do what he did, which also means obeying his teachings doing the things that he did, doing the things that he commanded. In fact, Jesus himself said in John 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, we like the first part. Yes, I love Jesus. A lot of us would probably raise our hands and say, I love Jesus. How many of us could raise our hands and say, I do what he commands? I'm actually following through on the things that he taught, on the things that he's doing. You see, part of following Jesus means obeying the things that he told us to do. But we get kind of squirrely when we start talking about obedience, right? Like maybe you even feel it this morning, like, oof, this is going to be a heavy-handed kind of message, right? We, we get a little squirrely. I don't know if that's how you want to describe it. Uh, we get a little, like, uncomfortable. Because right? some of us maybe have, you, have had that obedience word used against us to make you feel really guilty and, like, you don't belong in Christian community. Like, if I didn't do X, Y, and Z, then I wasn't good enough. Uh, some of us start to feel like, well, you know, uh, we're saved by grace, which means I didn't earn it. I don't earn it, and so so obedience sounds like I'm working in order to get God to love me. And so we get really kind of uncomfortable when we start talking about obedience. Uh, this is what one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, uh, identified. He said this uh, in his book, uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines: We are not only saved by grace, we are paralyzed by it. We're not only saved by grace, we're paralyzed by it. What he means by that is that we know that we're saved by grace, we don't do anything to earn God's love or to earn our forgiveness, but then when we're actually following Jesus, we become afraid of actually obeying him or doing things for him, lest we kind of fall into this kind of works approach to Jesus, that I'm doing things for him. He said this, we have been taught that grace means you can do nothing to be saved. Such thinking has been extended to you can do nothing to have spiritual growth. So spiritual transformation occurs in one of two ways in this thinking, either inspiration or information. Inspiration means that I expect that in one golden moment, one great experience, you will be transformed. The other view, information, says that if you pour truth into your head, suddenly you will be transformed. Inspiration isn't going to do it, and information isn't going to do it. The only way human character is transformed with grace is by discipline and activity. In other words, we are invited, in fact, we are even required to participate in the transforming work that God wants to do in our lives. Sometimes we have this idea that I'm saved by grace, and so that means I'm a passive participant in the life of discipleship, or in the life of being a student of Jesus. But what we see in Colossians 3, we're going to look at this morning, is that there is an active part that you and I play in following Jesus, And that active part involves putting off some things, choosing to say no to some things, and also then choosing to say yes to other things. That we are invited, in fact, required to participate in the transformation that Jesus wants to do in us. In Colossians 3, just remember where we have been, right? Because uh, this is not kind of Paul just dropping a bunch of moral teaching here. Remember chapter 1, he told us this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the firstborn son of God over all things. He is our rescue. He is our redemption. Chapter two, then, he said, this is what Jesus has done. In chapter two, we saw that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again. He overcame the power of sin in our lives. And then chapter three, we looked at last week, we are hidden in Christ. this This is how we are saved. We are saved. We are rescued through the work of Jesus, and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's where we are. And then and only then, what does he say in verse 5? Therefore, put to death some things. So what Paul is not telling us to do is to do X, Y, and Z, and then you will get God to love you. He's saying God loves you and has rescued you and redeemed you, and so now live into what he has done for you. Now live a life in accordance to what is true of you in Jesus, a life that looks like him. So there's two dynamics that we're going to talk about this morning from this text. First, there's going to be things that we put off, where Paul uses graphic language of put to death, kill it, murder it. That's what we're supposed to do to some things. But then he also says put on some things. So we're going to talk about this dynamic of putting off and putting on. So first, the things that we put off. Look at verse 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, remember, the previous verses, earthly, does not mean like created, like my body is bad, like the, the creation is bad. Uh, he's using this idea of where Christ is, his kingdom, versus the kingdom of the world, versus kind of default mode of living. So he's not saying, you know, your body is bad. He's saying, no, live for the kingdom of Jesus. Put to death what is earthly in you. And he gives two lists of five things. The first list is this, sexual immorality. Uh, the word he uses is pornea. Uh, It's where we get our contemporary terminology of pornography or pornographic. Uh, It had this idea then and it has this idea now of any sexual activity outside of covenant marriage. That's the idea of sexual immorality. But then he also says impurity. This is to desire something that is outside the bounds of covenant marriage. To have a desire for it. Passion then. He's not saying don't be passionate about your art or passionate about your sports team. He has this sense of a burning desire that I have this thing that is just kind of cooking in me, that I need to get out. He then says evil desire, which is a longing that is rooted in selfishness, a desire to consume, and then covetousness or greed, which is the easier word to say, which is where I just want it. I want it and I can't stop thinking about it. And he says this reality, these sexual sins, notice where these all stem from. These all stem from idolatry. Like, if you actually think about how Paul has organized this list, there's an external expression of sexual immorality. But then he almost works us back into, I'm thinking about this thing. I'm desiring after this thing. I'm wanting this thing. I'm greeting after this thing. And then what does he say? This all comes because I've placed something in my heart that is greater than God. You see, this isn't just about exterior behavior. This is about internal transformation. And so he says, these things come from idolatry verse 6, he says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. What does that mean? That means that God doesn't want these things for us. This is not part of his plan and purpose in our world. This is why Christ came, to take the wrath for our sin, so that we don't have to live under that wrath anymore. Look at what he says in verse 7. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. That's such an important verse, right? Because Paul is not just like hurling insults or labels on people for how they express themselves sexually. That's not his point. His point is this, that you are are rescued and redeemed from these things in Jesus. Like, this is not an us versus them, like, oh, that world is so terrible and awful and sinful, but thank God that we're different. He says, you, the very people he's talking to in this church, were rescued and redeemed by Jesus. That your sexual desires do not have to define you, and they do not have to be a prison that you live in. Christ can rescue and redeem you from whatever it is that is holding you back. Whatever it is that you feel enslaved to, that is what Christ came to do. Even that area of your sexual desire. So you used to walk in these things. That's all of us. All of us used to walk in those things. And so the first list is what we might call sexual sins, that we have to put off, we have to put them to death, set them aside. They have no part in our way with Jesus. Look at verse 8 or sorry, uh, yeah, verse 8, but now you must also put these all away. Anger. We all know what anger is. Right? Anger is where I'm just lashing out at you. I'm speaking out against you. I'm, I, I'm, I'm vengeful towards you. But wrath is kind of that internal, right, that internal I'm just simmering, like mm, just give me the right opportunity and I'm just going to lash out. Right? That's what wrath is. Malice is where I'm, I'm like contemplating how I'm going to get you. Right? I'm contemplating how can I just get back at you. That's what Malice is. Slander is when I'm not talking to you about my anger with you. I'm instead talking to my neighbor about my anger with you. It's like, can you believe what he did? Man, she's such a terrible person. That's what slander is. And obscene talk. Now, obscene talk in that in the original language does not mean I'm just full of profanity, although I think that's kind of a, it can fall into that. But it really has this idea that I'm talking uh, I'm talking badly about people. I'm I'm like condemning people and I'm I just ha- I'm just full of criticism. And I'm just full of, like, just negative language towards people. And then verse 9, he says, do not lie to one another. Just think about that, this list, like anger and wrath and that little white lie you told somebody. Those are all in the same continuum that Paul's talking about. We might might call these social sins, how we interact with one another. How we think about one another. Notice it starts with an external expression of anger, but he really gets to this very heart of like, live truthfully with people. Don't put up a pretense. Don't pretend to be something that you're not, be honest with people. He says this these are all part of the old self. Put these to death, set these aside. He says, put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. He's saying, look at people differently because of the way of Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to notice from these two lists. right? Because some of these, Paul's not so much saying, like, keep these lists in front of you and make sure you're doing X, Y, and Z. This is kind of a a picture of the the, the all-encompassing things that we're supposed to put off. But notice these two lists. On the one hand, you have what we would call sexual sins. On the other, you have what we would call social sins. The way of Jesus calls us to both sexual purity and social relationships that reflect equity and care for people. I just think about that. Like the, the way of Jesus calls us to both sexual purity and we might call it social equity or caring for people who are made in the image of God. And the one list is all about my sexual desires, what's going on inside of me. The other list is all about how i interact and treat people particularly people who are different than me or who bother me or who i'm upset with and the world that we live in particularly when we get talking into like culture wars wants to pit those two things against each other all right you'll have some people say the way of jesus calls us to a particular sexual ethic right uh, covenant marriage between uh, two opposite gendered spouses right that's kind of the christian sexual ethic that is in the scriptures that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about sexual immorality And so Paul is teaching, look, you need to hold to a particular sexual ethic. How you think about sexuality should be defined by Jesus. But he also says how we think about our social relationships, like we should care for people who are different than us. We should see, like when Paul says, Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, he is talking about the gamut of the social hierarchy in his world. He's saying because of Jesus— We should view people not in terms of where they fit in the politics or the geography or the nationality or the ethnicity or whatever the category is. Instead, we need to recognize that everyone who is in Jesus is made a new human. And so there is a new approach to people that we have to have in the way of Jesus. And so don't allow people around you to say, well, either Jesus wants us to care about sexual ethics or he wants us to care about social justice. Those things go hand in hand. Because Jesus is not just concerned about my interior life just as he's not just concerned about my exterior life, he wants a whole me following him wholeheartedly in every area of my life. This is what the church, his body, does. is not just having right sexual desires, but also caring for people in our community. And not just caring for people in our community, but also having a sexual ethic that's shaped by Jesus, that is defined by him and what he wants. And so Paul says we need to do both. Because what he is saying is that Jesus is creating a brand new way to be human. And that's what he's saying in that last verse. Christ is all and is in all. When he says it's being renewed after the image of its creator, he's using Genesis 1 and 2 language and applying it to Jesus. and saying Jesus is now the image. Jesus is now the one that we reflect. He is the one that we now seek to model our life after. He's creating a new way to be human. That is all-encompassing. And so anything that does not have to do with him, we should cut off. Or as he says, put to death. Now, how do we actually do that? How do you actually begin putting to death all these things? We don't have time to go through each and every one of these things, but I just want to draw a couple principles or ideas from Paul's list here. First, recognize that these things are already dead in you. When you are in Jesus, sin has already been defeated. If you go back in chapter 2, Paul says you have died with Christ, that Christ took the punishment for your sins, that he defeated the powers that are over you, and so sin no longer has power over you. You have been rescued from the power of sin, right? And so what we need to think about and consider there is, is this isn't me going to war against the full teeth of sin. This is me cleaning up after the battle that Jesus already won, he already won the battle, and so now I'm saying, okay, in light of what Jesus did, how then can I participate in Him? How then can I can I do the things that Jesus did in His power and His strength, so that my life can line up with what is true of me? Right? Sin is already dead in your life. We're just invited to cut the rest of it off. I was thinking about this picture this past week. Uh, when I was seven, I had a loose tooth, uh, and it was kind of right up here in the front, uh, and it was like loose, loose, like it was like straight up dead. Right? But I was seven, and I was afraid, and so I let it hang there. And I let it hang there, and hang there. And, and the worst part was I was afraid of it, so I wouldn't brush around it. And, and after a while, like, things started to become a little bit of an issue. But I didn't want to pull it out. Right? It was already dead, but I didn't want to do the last step. And over time, when we refuse to do that, it starts to become like that nasty old tooth that I was hanging out. Like it starts to stink. It starts to affect a lot of your relationships, right? As a seven year old kid, it was not a good thing. And you know what happened? You know what happened when my, my dad finally sat me down and said, Son? Like he had done this a couple times. Every time I was like, No, dad, I don't want to. Popped right out. For half a second, half a second of fear, I was free that's what Jesus wants for you, right? Rather than hanging on to the old ways of doing things, the ways of of anger and lust and burning desire, he took care of the power of it. He wants you to just pop the rest of it out. The reason why so many of us don't actually reveals that we don't trust Jesus, that he's actually going to take care of us, that he actually wants our freedom. And so we're hanging on to a, a nasty old gnarly tooth of whatever sinful habit it is when Jesus took the power of it. And if we would just trust him for a moment and cut some things off or say no to some things, it would actually lead to our freedom. It would actually lead to the life that Jesus wants for us. And so first we have to recognize that these things are already dead. Second thing that Paul points to is that most of our sinful habits begin with a lie. Most of our sinful habits begin with a lie. If you look at the very beginning in Genesis 3, that's what we see, that sin begins with a lie, that I'm believing in a lie about God, or I'm believing a lie about people around me, and that leads to then me making decisions that don't line up with the truth of who God is. So on the one hand, sexual desire, I'm believing the lie that my desire is the most important thing, and that if I have this person, if I have this experience, then I would finally be fulfilled, and so Paul calls that idolatry. I'm believing believing that this relationship or this sexual experience or this sexual expression will finally satisfy me rather than Jesus. When I'm angry towards people or I'm prejudiced towards people or racist towards people or misogynistic towards people, whatever that is, whenever I'm, I'm treating someone as less than, what am I doing? I'm believing the lie that they are less human than me, that they are different than me. And what does Paul say the truth is? Christ is all and in all. He defines humanity now not based on our differences, but based on what he did on the cross. And so if you find yourself stuck in a cycle of sin, there's probably a lie that you're believing about who God is or about who you are or about about what the life is that he wants you to live. And so identifying that lie gets to the heart of this. That's what Paul does, right? He's not just concerned about our exterior. He wants to know, what's the lie that I'm believing? Third, Third thing that he then says is to put it to death put it to death is to remove the temptation, to kill whatever it is that is part of that. Right? And this is where you and I can participate in this, but also where you and I often don't, which reveals that we would actually rather stay in our sin than follow Jesus, right? What are some ways that you can put these things to, get to death? I think in sexual sins, I think sometimes we just need to do the hard work of, of like, cutting off that relationship, Right, saying no to that text message relationship that you have with that person that you really shouldn't because it's, it's stoking some desires that you shouldn't have. Uh, for some of us, it's deleting the app and just getting rid of it. For some of us, it's actually putting filters and blockers on our, on our devices or giving your spouse complete total access to your phone at any point during the day. Those are the things, those are the decisions that we can make that are putting to death all the ways in which we can be tempted and drawn away. But we don't do those things because it's uncomfortable or because we actually like what we're doing. But Paul says, if you want to experience what Jesus has for you and the freedom that he wants for you, put it to death. At The moment you take that thing off your phone or the moment that you end that relationship, yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, it's going to hurt for a minute. Yeah, you're going to have to figure out new ways of operating and living and being, but that is what it takes to follow Jesus he brought you to life so you can put a few things to death for him now what about our social sins this list of anger and wrath and mal- like it's a lot easier to think about how do I put to death the sexual sins but the social sins are hard right because I, I I there's no like app that I can put on my mouth to keep me from saying some things I wish there was that'd be really nice um I was thinking about this the past couple weeks because uh uh through uh, just prayer, reflection, some friends, some reading, I started to realize I have a really kind of internal critic that is not necessarily oriented towards me, but it's oriented towards others. Uh, and, and it very rarely comes out. It'll come out maybe when I'm really tired. Uh, so lately, lately it's coming out. But uh, um, one of the things that, that someone helped me see was that it's actually rooted in envy, that I actually want what other people have, and so what comes out of me is what I think what Paul would call slander, which is I'm actually believing that they have something that I want or that I need. And so what do I do to cope? I, 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 I can be cutting, I can be critical, I can be negative in my thinking. Uh, and so this happened this past week. I was driving and, and something came to mind, a particular uh, person, and I had the opportunity where I could have just said something like real casual, real, real, real sly uh, to Kelly while we're in the car. And, and one of the things that this, this, particular this one book has helped me see is that the, the opposite of envy is gratitude, uh, and, and, which is what we're going to talk about when we talk about putting on the things of Jesus. And so I have a decision in that moment. I can either voice this criticism, and, and, and Kelly will hear it, but no one else will hear it. Judah will hear it, but he's sleeping. Right. Or, or I can choose in my heart, in my mind, say, God, how have you worked through that person? And that's hard. I don't want to do it. It feels so good to just like, you get real witty for a little bit and like people, and that, but it's like stoking this, this thing that Paul says is the old self. And so putting it to death is even just being mindful and reflective of saying, why am I speaking this way about this person? Why am I cutting in this kind of way? Like sarcasm. I think sometimes we like sarcasm, but sarcasm is actually kind of cutting. And if we're not careful, it's slanderous. Like that reveals that I'm thinking some things about myself and some things about them that don't line up with the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And so we have to remove those things. We have to cut those things off. We need to not give them quarter, if you will, as they used to say. And so we put those things to death. But the second thing that Paul says is not only do we put these things to death, we also put on some things. This isn't just about, like, cutting out all the terrible things, like just a no way of living. This is actually a yes way of living. We put on some things in verse 12. It says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So just stop there. Notice who you are when you're in Jesus. When you are in Jesus, you are chosen, you are holy, and you are beloved. Before you've ever put anything on. Right? So this is not like putting lipstick on a pig. Or this is not like covering up ugliness with makeup or, or covering up bad behavior with good behavior. This is instead uh, you embracing a way of life that actually reveals the beauty of how God intended you to be, reveals the, the truth and the righteousness and the justice that God intended you to live into. Right? This is actually us becoming who we are in Jesus, not us trying to be something that we aren't, in Jesus. And so he says, put on then as God's loved, holy, chosen ones. He gives another list of five. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I think most of those, we have a good sense of what those things look like. But the thing that's important to get is Paul's not just randomly giving us a list of virtues or nice things to do. These all are directly connected to the character of Jesus. He's saying, put on the character of Jesus. Jesus was often described as compassionate. He looked at people who were hurting and broken, and he felt for them. He was often described as being kind, particularly to people who were hurting or broken or isolated. He's described as being humble. He didn't seek a name for himself. He instead entrusted himself to God, and God did what he did with him. He was meek. Meekness is, I could be powerful, I could be aggressive, I could be strong right now, but instead I'm choosing to be gentle for you so you can know my love and patient. He's incredibly patient with us, he's incredibly patient with his disciples. See, Paul is saying that what we put on, he uses this clothing imagery, like like this cardigan. We put on the clothing of Jesus, put on the character of Jesus to live a life that looks Like him. That this is what we're called to live into. Not just random nice things to do, but the person and the work of Jesus. That's what we put on. Notice, though, how this happens. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. The primary way that this happens, that we put on the character of Jesus, is in Christian community. That this, yes, this might happen on your own in some ways, but the primary way that this begins to happen is as you are living in proximity to other followers of Jesus. That our community and our life together and the bumpiness of our life together, like all of that is Jesus bringing out the character of Jesus in us. That is what he is doing. That when community gets bumpy or when feelings get hurt, or things get said, right? We have the opportunity in that space to choose the way of Jesus or to choose the right way of anger, wrath, slander, malice, and lies. You see, this happens in community. And notice verse 14. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, the end goal of this life following Jesus is to become a person of love. And he says, like, love is what's holding it all together. It's like an outer jacket or like a, a waistband that's keeping it all tied together. And this is really important to get, right? Because we all know moral people who are not loving, right? They do good things. They do the right things. They give a lot. They're, they look good on the outside, but you know internally they do not love people. We all know it's possible to be patient with someone but not love them. The end goal is not that we would do all these things, but rather that we would become people who love like Jesus. Notice that this love has a particular shape. This is not just love like I feel nice, warm, fuzzy thoughts for you, or or I I just think nice things about you. This is love shaped like the cross of Jesus. He says, bear with one another. If anyone has a complaint, take the time to understand. Forgive As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. See, Christian love is not just a warm feeling or a fuzzy thought. It is love shaped like the cross of Jesus, which is willing to sacrifice, which is willing to to go into the hard places and say, let's seek reconciliation and understanding and peace rather than anger, malice, wrath, or slander. And that then leads us to, I think, what Paul identifies as two ways that you and I can do this. Two ways that you and I can begin to put on the character of Jesus. The first is through the practice of peacemaking. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. He says peacemaking, right? So so here's the thing. The peace of Christ is not just a nice feeling of inner peace. That's not what he's talking about here. This is the peace that exists in our body, in our community together. And that word when he says the peace of Christ, rule in your hearts, that word rule, uh, has the idea of an umpire. Now what does an umpire do? Right? An umpire says fair or foul. That's allowed or that's not allowed. That's a point or that's not a point. Right? That's a, a penalty or not. That's the end of my sports knowledge, Right? Right? An umpire says, this is what is allowed, and this is what is fair. These are the rules of the game. And so what he is saying is the peace of Christ. Now, what is the peace of Christ? It is the peace that Christ won for us on the cross, that he forgave us, that he died for us, that he won for us reconciliation. That is the peace, that is the example, that is the template, that is the umpire for how we engage in our differences and our disagreements and our conflicts and our complaints. That we do this like Jesus does this. Which means we seek reconciliation. We seek understanding. And we seek forgiveness. I think one of the primary ways, if you think about it, one of the primary ways that you can begin to put on the character of Jesus, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, is by asking for and extending forgiveness. Just think about it. Asking for and extending forgiveness. I was thinking about this this past week because I had to ask somebody for, to forgive me uh, for something that I had done. And when you ask for forgiveness, right, first, you have to be humble enough to admit that you are wrong. So you have to, you just, I had to put on humility. Then I have, to be, I have to be meek enough to not build up my defenses, but instead to go to someone and say, I'm really sorry for what I did. Would you forgive me? You see, when we practice forgiveness, it is actually practicing in us the very character traits that Jesus exhibited, that he wants us to have in our life when I ask for forgiveness. On the other hand, when I extend forgiveness, what do I have to do? I have to have compassion. I have to to listen to somebody who has hurt me. I have to be meek. I could come down hard on them, but meekness is instead saying, I'm going to see you as a brother or sister in Christ, I'm going to extend forgiveness. I have to be patient when you've hurt me. See, practicing forgiveness, this peacemaking, this reconciliation, is one of the primary ways in which we begin to put on the character of Jesus. And what do we do when we don't do that? What do we choose? We choose anger, wrath, malice, slander, lies. So you might have someone in this room that you need to talk to this morning. Say, man, I've been, I've been holding some wrath, some slander, some anger. And to put on the way of Jesus is to say, I need you to forgive me for that. And as we do this together, this is why you can't do this on your own. As we do this together, this is how we put on the way of Jesus. Because the mark of Christian love is not feeling nice, warm thoughts for people. It's sacrificing for people and extending forgiveness and reconciliation. So that's one of the primary ways in which we put on the way of Jesus. The second is in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The language here that Paul uses, and by the word of Christ, he means the example, the teachings, the gospel of Jesus, what he did, what he said, the things that we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He says, let that word dwell in you richly. He means that the word of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the example of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, it is as if they are another person in our community. They're dwelling here. And so when you and I are interacting or when you and I are trying to figure out how do we live life, or how do I make this decision, like the word of Christ, the teachings of Jesus, his life and example are in our community to show us how to live. Right? Which means that when we're in our life together, when we're in community together, does the word of Jesus come out like that? Right? It's super easy to like form community around our common interests, or like talk about what we're watching on Netflix or our sports team. And that's very easy to talk about. But what would it look like for us to say, you know what, this is what Jesus is teaching me this week? Or if we're like, I don't know what to do right here, I say, well, what do we know from the life of Jesus? That's how this begins to work in us. This does this in three ways. He says teaching. Teaching means that the way of Jesus shows us how to live. It it instructs us. How do I deal with enemies? How do I deal with conflict? How do I deal with all these situations? The word of Jesus does that. But it also admonishes and we don't like admonishing. Right? That's where I'm challenged, where I'm called out on some things, but that's what the word of Jesus does. But the third thing is worship. That it spills out of us in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that, that the things that we're learning about Jesus that the things that we're reading about Jesus together come up in our everyday conversation. And we encourage one another with these things. Because at the end of the day, what forms our community is not our common interests, or our shared positive feelings about ourselves, what forms us and holds us together is Jesus. And so if we have an issue with each other, Jesus is the one who holds us together. And his way teaches us to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. And the end result of this will be in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, that's an all-encompassing phrase. In word or deed your Sunday morning life, your Tuesday night life, your Saturday afternoon life, your community life, your alone life, your married life, your single life, your work life, whatever you do begins to look like Jesus. and begins to become an expression of your life with him. So that those folks who look in at the church and they say, I can't follow Jesus because they're a bunch of hypocrites, they begin to see a different story. They begin to see a different kind of community. A kind of community that's not perfect. This isn't about kind of presenting a perfect image. It's saying, I'm not perfect, and my neighbor's not perfect, and you know what? We got into it last week, but Jesus brought us back together. Man, what if people saw that? Not our perfect, upright, moral behavior so that we can lord it over people, but for people to see our brokenness in our community and see us still hold together because Jesus died for us. Man, that's what people need to see, and that's what they would see as we do this together. That in everything we do, we would do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to him. Let's do that together. God, we thank you for Jesus. He defeated sin for us. He invites us into a new way of life together. God, I know as we talk through a list like this, there might be folks who feel trapped in sexual sin. Uh, There might be folks who feel trapped in anger or malice or slander or unforgiveness. Spirit, would you show them that you have set them free through the cross of Jesus? God, would we be a community that's shaped by your love, shaped by your spirit, shaped by your cross? Would there would be nothing that would be strong enough to get between us that we would not say the cross of Jesus can handle it. He can give us the power to forgive and to keep walking together. Spirit, would you encourage us with this truth this morning, that nothing can separate us from your love because of what you've done for us in Christ. May that be true
0: of our community as well. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.